Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest for this podcast, Dr. Claire Wang from Columbia University. Uh, Claire holds an MD degree from the National Taiwan University and a doctoral degree from Harvard University School of Public Health and Health Policy and Decision Sciences. She's currently Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Management at the School of Public Health at Columbia University. And uh, Claire has done some very influential and insightful work on modeling of health policy. So Claire, I'm delighted to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with a general question about why is it important to model these public policies and what what does it mean to model something like this? Sure. I mean, when you have a policy that's targeted to improve public's health, um, isn't it important to model the actual impact on the health? Um, so I think that's a, a no-brainer to be able to create the quantitative evidence to inform policy decisions. All right. So you're, you're predicting what the impact of a policy would be. Yes. Okay. And very often that, that becomes a pretty complicated thing to do, doesn't it? Because no in doubt. many cases you don't know exactly how a policy will work until you do it but you want to have the best estimates possible. And, and that's why you're having to do sophisticated statistical things and pull information from a lot of different places. Yeah, we're finding, we're trying to strike the balance between the complexity and the simplicity of um, decision-making and the policy impact. Um, but ultimately, the goal is to make something that's uh, reasonably sophisticated. So we will, able, we will be able to integrate the best evidence we know in order to to inform the decision at hand. So I know you and your colleagues, um, one of the early um, modeling uh, enterprises you undertook was to establish what the calorie gap is. Can you explain what that concept means and what you found? Um, Sure. So our goal is to figure out what we have seen in the past 30 years in the United States is this rapid rise in the prevalence of obesity. Um, especially in children and adolescents. So our goal um, was to figure out how, how many calories a day on average um, underlines this rise in the body size of American children. So we were um, we all know that um, increase in body weight is a re- is a result of uh, energy intake is greater than energy expenditure. So what we call the energy gap is the difference between the two. Okay, so the amount of calories that have been added into the system somehow over those 30 years that account for the rising rates of obesity. Right. Then um, in this work, have you been able to, to untangle the contribution of the calories in versus the calories out, the number of calories people are consuming in their diet versus not expending through physical activity? Um, not through that particular piece of work. So what we're most interested in is, of course, we know that it's a combination of energy in and, and, and energy out. And uh, we, o- we also know that on average, Americans um, are being more sedentary and also consume more calories on a daily basis. So I think the policy message is still the same. We still want people to understand that um, you know, cutting back on calories, especially the empty calories, um, and increased physical activity are both strategies of closing that energy gap. Thank you. And I know that you've worked more recently on um, the potential impact of a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. So I'd like to find out a little bit more about what you've been doing on that. And let me begin with the following question. Why target sugar-sweetened beverages and not 
fast food or candy or pancakes or you know wh- whatever mm-hmm. might be out there? Well, um, I could answer that question in two different ways. One is the policy discussion. Um, so the taxes on sugar-sweet beverages is a real-world example of these are the policies being discussed um, in uh, several legislative seasons, and we see this uh, across the country in many states. So policymakers are looking for answers. And I think researchers in the scientific community at large should produce that evidence based on the best evidence we know. Um, Of course, the second response to that um, is a scientific one. So what we see in the rise of uh, caloric intake in American diet, the biggest change we've seen is in the sugar-sweet beverages. This is what we call the liquid calories or liquid candy, uh, has contributes to more and more um, calories to the American, the typical American's diet. Right now, an average American consumes about 50 gallons of these sugary drinks a year. And what would be the argument for using taxes as a means of addressing this as opposed to education or other things that might be done? Um, this is only one of the many strategies that um, the public health field have recognized that we have to address the consumption the, or the high consumption of these sugary drinks. Um, for one reason uh, why a tax will be considered is that, well, first of all, we have seen the price of these soft drinks being extremely low in comparison to other things that we're buying on a daily basis, um, other grocery, groceries, or even if you, know, if you contrast that with fruit and vegetables. It's just a striking difference between the rise in price of these healthful foods and the soft drinks. And that gap has widened over the years, hasn't it? Yes. Um, and second of all, a lot of the cons- a lot of the policy conversations are happening in um, places like schools. We wanted to take vending machines out of schools. We wanted to take them out of the lunch lines. However, the data actually show that the majority of the consumption of these soft drinks are at home. So even for children and especially for adults, some kind of policy strategies to address out of schools or out of a certain specific location is going to be very important. And I know there have been considerations of two different taxing strategies, sales versus an excise tax. Could you explain the difference in one, what might one, how one might be more, more um, desirable than the other? Sure. So we're more familiar with the sales tax in general. Um, sales tax is a percentage of the price. So um, you get added at the checkout counter. So when you purchase certain things and you, you're checking out and paying, um, the tax were added to your final uh, receipt. So you'll see the tax added after you've you made the purchasing decision. And I think that's the first limitation of sales tax comparing to the excise tax, which was imposed on um, producers, manufacturers, distributors, and in the case of soft drinks, on bottlers. So these costs were added on more upstream and believed to be more likely to influence the price that consumers see in, um, in the grocery aisle. So that would have more direct impact on their purchasing decisions. Um, moreover, the sales tax is the proportion of the price, and therefore it might push the consumers to... Um, larger serving sizes because when you go for the larger containers, it on average proportionally is cheaper. Um, 
And finally, we often cite um, one of the advantaged advantages of uh, excise tax is tax is going to influence um, food stamp purchases, which is exempt from sales tax. So let's get to the heart of the work that you've discussed, which is uh, modeling the impact of a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, tell me how you've gone about doing that, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. It's basically starting from um, a logical pathway. Why do we believe and what did the, um, the current evidence tell us? How would a, a tax on soda um, or, and other, uh, other uh, sweetened drinks would have an impact eventually on healthcare cost? So it starts with a logical pathway mapped out these processes. So for example, usually um, we, we think about the tax will increase price. Um, and an increase in price, a higher price, would drive consumers to consume less. And that's all very uh, straightforward. Um, based on epidemiologic literature, mm -hmm. um, people follow up many, many uh, subjects and observe their consumption uh, level and their future disease risks. We know that the consumption level is linked with future risk of developing diabetes, weight gain, and other cardiovascular consequences. So we built that in uh, in a modeling format and trying to calculate how much impact are we going to have on um, different type of diseases or even on the distribution of body weight in the population if we do something differently to the price of these drinks. And eventually, we know the price tax of uh, each of these healthcare um, uh, consequences, such as we know how much it costs society when someone has a heart attack. So that will be added on uh, to be the next component in this, in this logical pathway. And we use quantitative framework to put them all together. You know, I'd like to ask a question about one particular piece of this logic chain. And the, the reason that the, the taxes on sugar beverages are being considered now is mainly in the context of obesity. Um, but you've made the point that um, these beverages are having an impact on health aside from what they do to weight. Would you mind explaining a little bit about that? Sure. Um, obviously, um, the, the impact on weight is the centerpiece of, um, we gave it a lot of attention and really drives the conversation a big deal. However, um, when you look at the follow-up studies, when they follow up people for a long time, um, they found out that weight gain only explains half of, um, uh, just part of the association between high intake of these sugary drinks and people's risk of getting diabetes. The explanation has been because these sugary drinks are providing so many of these readily digestible calories and, and carbohydrates, our body processes them differently. Um, it interferes with our insulin function and eventually gives rise to a poor response to glucose in our bloodstream. Um, in the long run, that gives rise to an increased risk in diabetes, even if people did not gain substantial weight. Right. What we haven't been able to see in the literature is you can think about other consequences such as, um, you know, dental problems in kids. Um, we also started to see evidence showing um, uh, increased risk of hypertension and cholesterol seems to be mediated through other pathways not that's not uh, mediated through body weight gain. 
So public health officials could be interested in these taxes for lots of reasons in addition to obesity. Absolutely. So can you explain some of what you've uh, found now when you look at the potential impact of these taxes? Um, we found that, um, first of all, it's going to have a substantial impact on health care cost. Um, uh, even just an, a penny an ounce level of excise tax, which raised the price by about 22%, it is going to have a substantial impact when you aggregate over the entire population um, in terms of their number of new diabetes cases, um, and especially true in populations with high disease burden of diabetes, um, such as middle-aged adults and lower-income uh, populations or some race-ethnic minorities. Um, aside from diabetes, um, there are some small impact on um, uh, the average body weight of the population, um, which translates to a good number of uh, obese ad uh, adults being prevented from becoming obese. Um, and as a result, um, the combination of less obesity and less diabetes is translating into about $18 billion over 10 years' time, um, if this were to implement uh, uh, nationwide. $18 billion. Yeah. So in, the ter in terms of... Um the number of cases of obesity prevented, are we talking nationally, are we talking about, you know, tens of thousands? Is it several hundred thousand? I mean, kind of what's Tens the, of thousands of okay. uh, diabetes cases. Okay. Um, but diabetes tends to be chronic. So um, aggregating over time, we're talking about a lot of the time, uh, person times, as we call it, uh, is spent on diabetes. Okay. Now I know, um, so it looks like from the projections that you have, and I know that you've you published a, a very um, powerful and important document on the projected effects of a tax in New York State when the state legislature was considering that. And then you were part of a team effort that just published a similar paper on the effect of the a penny per ounce tax in Illinois. Were the were results similar for what you found in New York and what the group found in Illinois? Yeah, it's, it's largely similar. Um, the two states have relatively similar demographics. Um, they both have um, a large metropolitan area and a good proportion of minorities and, um, and low-income population. Right. And for both states, um, you know, the consumption pattern is quite similar, that the people who are consuming the most were young people and middle-aged, uh, sorry, uh, young, young, young people or adolescents and young adults. They have higher consumption level. Um, will have larger impact on these people in terms of their cal calorie impact and, uh, and, and their body weight. Um, on the other hand, the age group that is between 45 to 64, um, and many of them are suffering from high risk of diabetes to start with, they're going to have very immediate impact on their disease risk as, uh, in the foreseeable future. So one of the arguments um, against such a tax, oh, by, before I ask that question, I, I wanted to ask a different one. Um, your estimates don't, um, don't uh, estimate any impact on use of the revenue, do they? This is just on the impact of the tax on the consumption of the beverages and therefore health consequences. That's right. So this is what we were talking about, just the direct impact on health care. 
And uh, what, Kelly, what you're talking about is what we call the lighthouse effect, um, the indirect impact of such tax. The revenue that's generated through such a tax could be used in many different ways. Um, if you spend on healthcare or promoting nutrition in schools um, or um, you know, go into obesity prevention, it could potentially have even larger impact than the direct impact um, from these tax. Right, or taxes. something like subsidizing fruits and vegetables. Absolutely. Would be a possibility. So one argument against such taxes is that they're regressive and would disproportionately hurt the poor. Uh, what is your response to that? Um, so this issue has been looked um, by many people, and I, and I think you know the regressivity of a tax means um, the the poor will ended up shouldering more will be ended up paying more of these taxes than um, people who are at higher income. The reason why this is, could be the case is because uh, at baseline, lower income individuals consume more of these beverages. So in other words, if you put a tax on these beverages, they will end up paying more of these taxes. Um, on the other hand, it seems to show that lower income individuals are buying these uh, beverages at, at a lower cost, possibly through um, shifting their purchase through uh, towards more store brands or larger serving sizes. So I think the net impact is unclear. Uh, but moreover, what I've been seeing lately is that, so the net impact over a year time is about $30 on a household. Um, so $30 is hardly a very large number to speak with in terms of the total food spending for a household. So, I mean, that's what uh, an individual would pay if the tax were put in place in addition <clears throat> to what they were paying already. That's right. Okay. And comparing to higher income households. Okay. Um, and what has never been put into this, this equation is the healthcare impact. Um, based on our analysis, if you just look at the healthcare savings uh, from these taxes out of uh, reducing consumption, the poor um, are actually benefiting more at the per capita basis in terms of savings from diabetes and heart disease. More, uh, more than the $30 that they would be paying out in taxes? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, that was one of the questions I had, that one of the arguments that I've heard in response to that regressivity argument that the poor are being hurt disproportionately is that they stand to benefit the most from it because they're least likely to be insured, and there are considerable health care costs that come from things like diabetes, so that the, the money that they would get back from this tax policy would, would actually net them more money. Well, I, I think that's definitely something we're very interested in, you know, going forward and thinking about who is paying and who is benefiting. And I think we're still very early um, in, in, in answering this question. Um, we don't know yet whether or not it could be said in, a, in such a simple term that uh, because we have different payers and different uh, people who benefit. Now, one of the issues that, that you've raised that I think is extremely interesting is what the industry might do in response to uh, tax coming online and how they could change their own pricing strategies in various ways. What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. There's a lot of uncertainty on what the industry response will be, um, aside from what we already see um, in the media on their response to the potential proposal and discussion of these taxes. 
Um, and I think these conversations will, will go on in terms of what do we believe um, is, um, you know, the impact on consumer freedom and, and, and all these issues, which are very important. However, I think um, the question you're asking is, is definitely, you know, on the mind of many people. Um, basically, when a tax is imposed, would they pass through completely to consumers? And that's basically the question. So when you put uh, one cent per ounce on a can of soda, that just means 12 cents per can of soda. Um, will we see a price increase from, say, $1 to $1.12? Um, the answer is not yet known. Um, some say that uh, the industries might even might increase the price even more um, than the 12 cents we, we just spoke about. Or some people believe that they might just diffuse the, pro the price increase to all their products. So instead of having one big increase on one product on the uh, regular soda, you might see a small increase on all the products they offer. And that's basically a question still out there and uh, um, we don't have an answer to. I know there's no way of predicting what would happen here. I know the people that have studied tobacco found that the, the industry passed along all the taxes into the price of the cigarettes and then increase things even more because they found out that they could raise their profits that way. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether the, uh, the, so the beverage companies might not do the same, but in a funny way, help public health. So you'd mentioned that mm -hmm. the uh, penny per ounce tax, excise tax, would, could amount overall to about a 22% increase in price, depending mm -hmm. on the size of the container. And so if that gets passed along to consumers, it would be a 22% increase in price. But the companies could decide, decide to raise the price by, let's say, 25% or 27%. And if they found that there wasn't any further reduction in sales with that, then they would just make more money for every container they sold. But that the, there might be some benefit to public health beyond what you get from the, from the 22%. It'd be interesting, and of course we can't predict what industry would do, but it'd be interesting to know if they're thinking about this at least and Absolutely. Uh, and, what they might do. And, uh, well, the one's consideration that uh, beverages, sugary beverages, are different from the tobacco case is the existence of substitutes. And even within the same company, there are other options that people can switch to. So I think that really changes the question and sort of the predicted response um, that's very different from cigarettes. So I'm really interested in um, the new evidence and new thinkings in this area um, and trying to figure this out. You know, it's interesting because I've often heard people from the industry say that, that they're agnostic about which of their products people buy so that if somebody, you know, within the Coca-Cola or Pepsi brand switches from a sugared beverage to water or juice or diet coke or diet pepsi that's that that's just fine with with the industry because they might make as much money and my my intuition tells me that that's partly true but but i think there's something that gets missed in that argument and it's the fact that people overconsume things that are high in sugar and high in caffeine and things like that whereas they don't overconsume water i mean how often do you find somebody taken to the hospital because they've been consuming too much water so but they do overconsume the the other beverages to the point where it really contributes to obesity so it's going to be interesting as time goes on to see how industry responds to this but there sure seems to be a lot of attention across the country to sugared beverages in legislators in the public health world 
Yes, absolutely. And um, and I think parents and pediatricians um, and 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 general public is getting the message. Um, the pediatricians and school teachers started to te teach our kids, you know, when you're thirsty, grab the water. It's free. And that's going to be a huge incentive for a lot of people. Um, but on the other hand, I, I, th I think this is um, sort of a personal an opinion sort of issue that whether or not industry has a, has a place to play here. And I and I'm I, I actually believe that I think going forward in order to shift the American diet towards a more healthier uh, direction, um, we cannot exclude the role of the industries. So um, if the companies, well, companies are, um, they're doing their best to sell the products and, and, and uh, be profitable. And I think that's completely fair. And that's not going to go away. So if there's a win-win situation there, we should definitely explore yep. um, to promote healthier products and, um, and product mix. And um, a lot of the beverage companies also have a huge portfolio in water. And so whether or not um, that could be part of a solution is, um, you know, it's out in the debate. But I do believe that a better selection of products um, is going to be important. I would agree with that. Well, Claire, I want to thank you for coming to join us. This work on modeling public policies is so important because you said it yourself early on that um, legislators are looking for answers. They care about this issue and they want to do something. And uh, they have to guess about what's the right thing to do. And the more they can have data on which policies are likely to have big effects, little effects, even negative effects, then they're in a better position to make an educated decision about what policies to support. So I think your work in that context is extremely important. And I want to thank you not only for doing the work, but for joining us today. Thank you so much. So our, our guest today was Dr. Claire Wang, Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. Uh, there you'll find a variety of resources on food and food policy issues, a list of the other podcasts that were recorded, a free email newsletter, and a ton of other good things. It's a terrific website. Thank you.